Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our little study, if I uh, were to give it a title, is uh, Abounding Grace. Abounding Grace. We're going to be talking about grace. And grace is one of those topics that uh, is very often talked about in the scriptures and in Christian circles. It's one of those things that uh, you hear almost all the time. It's one of the most common used Christian uh, words, grace. We all talk about grace. And uh, this evening I want us to look at grace in a way that we might perhaps uh, appreciate in a fresh way. In, in, with a fresh insight about grace. Because when we talk a lot about grace, we find that... What grace really is, all of a sudden becomes to get a little, starts to get a little hazy as far as its meaning. For example, we say grace, and we are admonished to grow in grace, and we are ministers of grace, and we pray for grace. And some people have a problem with what they call cheap grace. And in all these different usages, there's different definitions. And so tonight I want us to look at one particular definition of grace that is a practical one because all too often we find that the, these terms that we use often, before long they become mere concepts that are a little bit hazy in our minds. And today I want to remove grace from that realm and hopefully move it to the practical relevant realm for us today and see what it really means and uh, it's it's a beautiful thing when we see what the scripture actually defines grace to be so this is what we're going to look at one of the definitions of grace that to me is a very practical working definition because you know if you think about it as well if you were to define grace to someone who doesn't believe so you know christians talk a lot about grace right and so some non-christian meets you and and he asks you okay you you christians you talk about grace all the time what what is grace how would you define it for them how would you explain it to a non-christian the most common explanation is unmerited favor well you say well, it's unmerited favor that doesn't say too much to the non-christian you might still have a blank look Someone has come up with a, with a very clever acronym for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Have you heard that one? That's a pretty clever one. It's a little acronym for grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Very true. Very, very uh, well put. But what really is it? If we can define it practically, how can we really pinpoint what is this grace? Because after all, we know it's important, isn't it? We are saved by by grace. So we want to spend some time looking at that today and uh, I just want us to keep in the back of our minds that when we're looking at grace as far as this particular definition is concerned, grace is not just a concept. It is not just an idea. It is not just a concept that actually exists in God's mind. Because generally that's the understanding. We talk about God's unmerited favor it means unmerited is undeserved, right? And, and favor, is, it's the opposite of this favor or wrath because we deserve wrath, right? So God treats us as we do not deserve. It's something unmerited, something you don't deserve. So he looks at us with favor rather than with 
Wrath, isn't that right? That's the common, the most common definition. But the problem with this understanding is it reduces grace to a concept or an attitude that is in God's mind. It's how God looks at us. It's something that's in God's mind. So he, he, rather than looking at us as we deserve, he changed his mind about us, and he looks at us in a way that we don't deserve, and this is grace, and this is how we're saved. This is not what we're going to be looking at tonight. We're going to see actually the, defin the biblical definition of grace is actually much more practical and much more powerful than a concept that exists in God's mind towards us. So hopefully that's a, a brief outline. Let's dive into the, into the meat of it. Uh, as we get into grace, there are different kinds of grace and there are different levels of grace. Different kinds and different levels. There are at least two, two kinds of grace that uh, we are aware of in the scriptures. The first one is in Matthew 5. Let's open our Bible. Let's go to Matthew 5. And we will look at the first kind of grace. Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew 5, we will look at verse 45. A very familiar verse to all of us. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45. And this one here says that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. And this grace, we refer to it as common grace. The theological term for this is common grace. The reason why it's called common grace is that everybody gets it. There is no exclusive group that gets this blessing from God. Rain does not fall on only the righteous. The sun does not only shine on Adventists, or you know, whoever it might be, there is no criteria for who receives this blessing. And you have to keep in mind that any blessing that comes from God is an aspect of grace. So this is why we refer to this as a common grace. Now, examples of common grace is not just sun and rain, it's every temporary blessing that we have in this world, whether it be food, whether it be shelter, whether it be family, whether it be children, whether it be health, all these are common grace blessings that everybody receives to a certain measure. Some more, some less. Some people get too much sun, some people get too much rain. We get floods every year in, in Australia, so we get a lot of rain sometimes. This is a common grace that applies to all people. Now, the most important common grace of all is which one? Does anyone know? It is life. This life that we have, which uh, the scripture presents to us as probationary life. In other words, it's only given for a certain period of time, during which is given to us a chance to make a very important decision. All grace, whether it be common or the other kind that we're coming to now, all grace comes to us through Christ. That's important to keep in mind. Every single one of them, every one of these blessings. Common grace does not save anyone. It is not saving by nature but it is a blessing nonetheless. The other kind is the one that we're more familiar with, the one that we refer to more often when we speak, which is saving grace, and that's in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at that one as well. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And this one is what we are all more familiar with. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 tells us, for by grace are ye saved through faith, 
and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. We're saved by grace. So is it important? Yeah, is it salvational? You better believe it. Our understanding of grace actually impacts our understanding of salvation. And our lack of understanding of grace to that measure hinders or fuzzes out, you know, or, or blurs our understanding of salvation. That's how we are saved. Now this is the theological term for this is saving grace. And this saving grace is actually not common. It is exclusive to only one group of people. Which group of people is that? Those who exercise faith. Because that's how you access it. This is an exclusive grace. It is a saving grace. It's available to everyone, but only those who exercise faith can receive it and benefit from it. So it is saving grace. It's actually how we're saved. This is the science of salvation. This is really what we're dealing with when we talk about grace. And it's a very, very important and exciting topic at the same time, how we are saved. And it's amazing that the grace whereby we are saved among believers somehow gets a little bit fuzzy in its practical definition. And uh, we have a little bit of confusion about that. Finally, one point we don't want to miss here. At the end of that verse, it tells us that this saving grace, uh, this grace that saves us, is a gift. It is a gift. It is something that is given to us. That's what it is. And so the link between the two is also interesting. Common grace is what paves the way for us to accept saving grace. That's what prepares us to receive saving grace. That's what common grace is. Common grace speaks to us of a God who blesses. And that actually paves the way for saving grace. So there is a relationship between them as well. But common grace does not save. Only saving grace does. Sometimes the two get confused a little bit. Sometimes, not often, because we don't realize the distinction between the two. But what is this saving grace exactly? What really is it? What does it mean? Let's look at some definitions here in the scriptures. Let's look at one in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. What is this gift of grace that saves us? That's how we're saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> this way, hopefully, next time you meet your uh, non-Christian friend and he asks you or she asks you, what's this grace you go on about all the time? Maybe you can tell them after the study. Something practical, something life-changing. Because this is what grace is designed to be. It changes lives to make us saved in the kingdom, to bring us into the kingdom. And so it's important for us to understand it. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 is what we're reading. Verse 9 said... Paul here, uh, commenting on what Christ told him after his prayer. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Did you pick up the definition here? Okay, the verse spells it out right here. Paul understood that when Jesus told him, listen, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul understood that when God, Christ's grace is sufficient for him, he will have the power of Christ. So definition, one definition for grace here is power. The power of Christ. Now that's something very practical for us. So it's not just favor or benevolence. It is power. 
We're going to see what that means for us. This is the power that saves. In Romans 1:16, I think we're all familiar with the verse. You can write it down if you want. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We are saved by grace. Grace is what brings us salvation. The power of God to salvation. It's the same thing. Grace, again, here is represented or defined to be power. God's saving power power, the power that saves. Let's look at Titus chapter 2. Just a few uh, verses here to give us some biblical definitions. Titus chapter 2. End of the New Testament, somewhere in the back there. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. <clears throat> Titus 2, 11. Here, Paul writing to Titus and he tells him, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. God's grace brings salvation. And Paul in Romans, we just read or we just referred to it. He said it's the power of God unto salvation. And this grace of God that brings salvation appeared to all men. In other words, it has come to the reach or within the grasp of all men. God's saving grace. So God's Power to salvation is God's grace, which brings salvation. It's the same thing. We see that? Power. Now, once we understand that grace is power, it starts getting really interesting. Because as we just follow the Bible definition, it starts getting extremely interesting, as we shall see. Well, if grace is power, what is the source of this power? We already saw that uh, Christ told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect. And Paul said, that's when the power of Christ rests upon me. But let's look at a more precise aspect of that. Let's look at the book of Acts chapter 1. I'm just doing a little Bible study here to uncover one of those important definitions for grace. Acts chapter 1. Book of Acts chapter 1. And verse 8. And what we're looking for is the source of power. If grace is power, what is the source of power? And it's the power of Christ, of course. What is the source? Can we identify it? Jesus says in verse 8, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Jesus told his disciples, you will receive power after something comes. What is it? The Holy Spirit. So we can link all these things that we're finding together. The Holy Spirit, which we understand what that is, and, and we're going to look at that in a minute, is the source of the power which saves. And the Bible term for the power of God that saves is grace. That's how we're saved. <coughs> But why did Jesus tell his disciples, wait? He told them here, you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And in, in the passage there, he told them to wait in Jerusalem, not to go anywhere, not to go start preaching, but to tarry in Jerusalem because they were to receive this power, or this promise, in a few days. Isn't that right? And remember, Jesus was talking to them at that time after he had spent 40 days with them since his resurrection. Isn't that right? 
So 40 days he spent with, with his disciples, speaking with them and, and, and sharing with them and instructing them. And on day number 40 is when this event is, and he's telling them, you need to wait a little bit because you're going to get this power when the Spirit comes upon you, but it's going to be in a few days. Well, why did they have to wait a little bit? What was the purpose of waiting? John chapter 7 gives us the answer. Why did they have to wait for a few days? He said, not many days hence. John chapter 7. Why did Jesus not just give them the Spirit and power right then and there? John 7 is the answer. John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39. And just keep in mind, we're studying grace here, okay? Grace, God's grace that saves us. John 7, verse 38 says, Jesus speaking, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. And so here is the purpose for waiting. Jesus Christ had to go away and be glorified before the Spirit could be poured out. Now, interestingly enough here, we need to pause at this description a little bit. The way that Christ describes this outpouring of the Spirit, He says it is so abundant, it is so abounding that He tried to represent it. He says it's going to be like rivers of water in your belly, on your midst. Someone, I think last night Howard commented on that. Interestingly enough, not just one river, but rivers to go not just in one direction, but in all directions. And it will spring forth from within. But he says, in order for you to receive this, what I'm talking about is this Holy Spirit. But before you can receive this, John says it wasn't yet given because Christ had not yet been glorified. There's something about the glorification of Christ and the giving out of the Spirit, which is really the source of God's saving power, which is the grace whereby we are saved by faith. Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, when did Jesus become glorified? It was not many days hence. Anyone know how many days it was after? It was 10 days, right? Because 10 days from that, we see an incredible outpouring of the Spirit, which we know as the day of Pentecost. And when we see that outpouring of the Spirit, we immediately know that Christ must have been glorified because it says the Spirit was not yet given because He was not yet glorified. In other words, as soon as He is glorified, the Spirit would be given. So just all you have to do is to look to see where the Spirit was given, then you immediately know He was glorified. You see, what happened in heaven on that very day, on the day of Pentecost, something happened in heaven. Christ was glorified. He was inaugurated and installed into His position as the high priest of His people. He was anointed with the oil of gladness. And when that happened, immediately he poured out his spirit. And we see on earth events that signify there was a lot of power. Isn't that right? As we shall see in just a minute. Now, uh, it's important for us to understand what spirit means. And I'm not going to spend too much time on that. I think we all understand that the Bible definition for spirit is really 
breath or life. One time Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So spirit means life. That's one of the definitions for spirit. And when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, he's talking about a holy life. Which life? His life. You see, it's his life that had to go. It's, it was he himself that had to go and be glorified. The, the Holy Spirit is intrinsically tied up with the person of Jesus Christ. And to separate the two is the work of Satan. We're talking about grace that saves us. And understanding grace and the source of grace, understanding that the Spirit is really life. And it is none other than the life of Jesus Christ. That's why he had to go away, and when he, something happened to him, he was glorified, then he could pour out the Holy Spirit or the Holy Life. Because that Spirit is none other than his life. Let's look at Galatians chapter 4. Just to confirm this conclusion, because to some it's a little bit far-fetched. Galatians chapter 4. Is it true? that the Spirit is the life of the Son. He, uh, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 and verse 6. Galatians 4, 6 here says, <clears throat> And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What does God send? The Spirit of his son, or in other words, he sends the life of the son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is the spirit of adoption that the Bible talks about in other places. This was possible because Christ had been glorified. And so now we have this life, and it's represented for us, brothers and sisters, as rivers of water flowing out. Not sitting, but flowing out. God wants the life of Jesus Christ to be deposited in your being in such a way that it will pour out to all those around you. And me, and each and every one of us. That's God's purpose, that's God's plan. And the Bible term for all of this is this innocent word called grace. We're, we're, we're kind of digging into the word a little bit here. Now, why is it that this outpouring in such an abundant measure, Jesus said, had only, uh, could only happen after he was glorified? You see, it had never happened in the history of the world that someone had lived a consistent life of never sinning once. Isn't that right? Only Christ accomplished that. For the very first time in the whole history of the universe, here we had someone who lived with a zero sin policy. Isn't that right? Every single trial, every single temptation, every single attack, he withstood and he overcame every single time. And all these experiences that Christ obtained in his, I'll take the question after just for the recording, but to hold on to that, I'll take that comment after. I see your hand. Uh, all these experiences that Christ obtained and accomplished in his life, at the very end of his life, we find he prays in John chapter 17, and he says, Father, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Isn't that right? In other words, he's saying, mission accomplished. And then he asks for something. What's he asked for? He says, Father, now glorify me 
with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He's asking for this glorification. What's really in his mind is not something for himself. This is not a selfish request. Because in, uh, tied in with this glorification is the pouring out of this life, for giving it to all his believers. And so what he's really asking for is for the behalf of all his believers. And that's why a little later in the same chapter, it says, In the glory which thou hast given me, I have given them. And that happened when Christ was glorified. So it's important to keep in mind that what John here is referring to is saying, there is something that is coming when Jesus is going to be glorified that has never been seen before. That victorious life has not been poured out upon us in such a measure until Christ had lived it and gone to heaven and was glorified. And then that happened or then that was available and then, then that came. And that's why we're talking about the more abounding grace or the abundant grace. As I said before, there are different kinds of grace and there are also different levels of grace. There is more grace in certain times than in others. Now I want you to think about that for a minute because uh, as we saw, you know, grace is God's power. God's power is really the spirit. That's the source of it. And that spirit was poured out only after Christ was glorified. So the question naturally would be, well, what about before then? Was there grace before then or in the Old Testament time? Was there grace in the Old Testament? And the answer is yes, of course there was because that's how anyone can be saved. You see, God does not have different programs of salvation for different groups of people. Everybody who is ever saved is going to be saved by grace through faith. But don't forget that there is different levels of grace. And that's what I want to explore just a little bit here because it was actually prophesied that there would be more abundant grace after a specific event would take place. Let's look at one of these prophecies just quickly. First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. What are we finding here about grace and different levels of grace? First Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> Verse 10, 1 Peter 1, 10. He says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Peter here summarizes the prophecies of the Old Testament, and all the prophecies of the Old Testament really pointed to one particular person and event, the sum of them, basically. The climax of them was the coming of the Messiah. Isn't that right? The coming of the Savior to this world. And then here Peter says, these prophets, they searched and they inquired and they longed for and they looked forward to something that was prophesied. And what was it that was prophesied? Grace that should come. Well, didn't they have grace? Weren't they saved in the Old Testament? Yes, but there was something coming that had not been seen before. There was something that was going to come, as far as grace is concerned, that had never been seen before. And the coming of the Messiah to this world would usher in a level of grace that is so more abundant and so more available than had ever been before in the history of the universe. 
And here Paul, Peter tells us these prophets, when they heard these prophets, they were looking forward and searching diligently to try and understand about this grace that was prophesied to come to you, the recipients of his letter. This, this, is the, this is the background of what Peter is trying to tell them. He's saying what you are having and what you're experiencing, what is being preached to you, is something that people in the Old Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament, longed for and looked forward to with great diligence. And not only is it the people that Peter wrote for, but it's also us. And uh, that's significant to keep in mind. In the coming of the Messiah and through Christ, there would be opened up a fountain of grace that is so much more abundant than had ever been seen before. Let's go to John chapter 1 and just see if this is revealed elsewhere. Peter talks about this prophecy, and here's the fulfillment of this prophecy. John chapter 1, the fulfillment of this prophecy that the Messiah would usher in a measure of grace. that was never seen before. John chapter 1. Let's look at a few verses that are familiar here. John 1, 14. Verse 14, we all know it. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. There is no one in the history of the world up to that time who could qualify to fit that description, isn't that right? No, no human being had ever been described as full. That leaves room for nothing else, F nothing else. Full of grace and truth. Here is the treasure chest of grace. And that treasure chest of grace came to this world in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the, the, the burden of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And keep in mind, we're looking at this grace and what this grace is, is all these different things that we found. It is God's power to save. It is really the life of Christ. And the life that Christ lived on earth, he manifested the effect and the victories of that grace. And then he gives us that grace or that life with that added, enhanced experience that he has obtained. Look at the next verse. Uh, sorry, no, not the next verse. I lost my place. Just a sec. Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. Isn't that right? John 1, 14. Look at verse... Where are we here? Sixteen. I'm going all around it. Verse 16. Just skip one verse. So he's full of grace and truth. Notice what verse 16 says. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. You ponder that for a little bit. John says we saw the Son of God. He is full of grace and truth. And then he says of that fullness, of his fullness, have all we received. And grace for grace. Grace to match the grace that he had, the grace that he revealed, and the grace that he unleashed. It's not a lesser one. It's, a, it's the same grace. Grace for grace. It matches it. This is the abounding grace. And then the next verse says the same thing. It says, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The revelation that God gave through Jesus Christ had never been seen in the history of the universe. The law of God could not provide the grace that only Christ could bring. 
That's what he's saying. The law was given by Moses. But grace and truth, saving grace, only came by Jesus Christ. We know that because the law cannot provide us with any salvation. We all believe that. But Paul is emphasizing here an aspect that the coming of Christ to this world ushered in a period of grace that is so drastically different than has been before. In that, there is now a level of grace that is more abounding. I don't want us to miss that. That's why we're talking about different levels of grace. And we saw that this was manifested in the day of Pentecost. Had there ever been an event like the day of Pentecost in the history of the universe? No, we don't read about anything like that ever in the scriptures. The day of Pentecost. What happened then is the seal of the fact that God has opened the treasure house of heaven completely. Why? Because Christ has now come to this earth and he has overcome the devil and by his resurrection he has sealed the doom of Satan. Did you realize that it was at the resurrection that the great controversy was won? It's not yet finished, but the controversy has been won. At the resurrection morning, that's when the controversy was won. It's not yet finished, and as we realize the accomplishment of Christ when he won that great controversy, the accomplishment of what the resurrection means, it is in our power to actually bring the end of the controversy sooner. We realize that. Too often, all too often, we are living like we are still under the time of the Old Testament where we don't have the abundant grace that we have now. Too often, not realizing what we have available to us. And this is why I want to highlight that because that grace is accessible by faith, right? But our faith, we need to understand what we're trying to access. We need to understand the goal. And so I'm trying to paint the goal. And so that, to, the purpose of it is to encourage our faith so we can understand what we're trying to grasp with faith. What we have available for us, brothers and sisters, this abundant grace is something that the prophets of the Old Testament looked and searched diligently to try and understand and to try and comprehend. Not only that, let's go back to 1 Peter. Let's go back there. Because not only them... Let's see what else it says. First Peter. And then hopefully it'll all start getting together a little better. First Peter chapter 1. Verse 12. We read verse 10. Look at verse 12. Unto whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. It's all right there, packaged. Peter is saying they looked and they, they earnestly talked about these things. It wasn't for them, it was for you. And what they were talking about and the climax of their prophesying was the things that are reported, which is the preaching of the gospel with what? With the Holy Spirit sent out from heaven. When did that happen? Pentecost. And who likes to look into these things? The angels. You know, not only these uh, prophets, but even the angels looked forward to the time when the Messiah would come. See, it was plainly revealed in the scriptures. 
that the grace that was to come under the Messiah's kingdom was vastly superior to the grace that was available before. And brothers and sisters, we need to count ourselves immensely privileged living in this side of when these things happen. And uh, there's, there's many, many examples for that, but let's, let's press, press on. Let's look at uh, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Just see, uh, chapter 4, I'm sorry. Acts chapter 4. Let's see how this is portrayed as it all comes together so wonderfully when we talk about God's saving grace. Acts chapter 4, verse 33. Acts chapter 4 and verse 33. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. They gave witness with great power. What was upon them? Great grace. Great power, great grace. Why? Because that's when the Holy Spirit was sent down from heaven. That's what was prophesied in the Old Testament. And that is the power of God to save. It was poured out in such an immense way and it has never been taken back since that time. And that is why the Bible talks about Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. Grace. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We're almost there. Ephesians chapter 3. <clears throat> and verse 2. Paul talks about something here that he refers to. He says, If ye have heard of the dispensation of grace, of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word. The dispensation of grace. That's what we're living in, right? But dispensation here is, uh, it means, well, what's dispensation mean? I should ask you. What's dispensation? Stewardship, you know, uh, maybe another word to help explain, a dispensary, you know what a dispensary is? It's where you go and things are dispensed or given out, right? So Paul is saying here, you heard about this dispensation of grace, that is uh, the grace of God, which has given me to word. We are living, brothers and sisters, at the time when grace is dispensed without any measure or limit. That's what we're living in right now. This is the dispensation of grace. This is where the grace is just being dispensed. And Jesus likened it to rivers of living water. The question is, are we on the receiving end or not? It depends on how we view and understand that grace. You realize that? Because our faith is, you know, we need to have an intelligent faith. Our, our faith is based on what is written. If our understanding is, is, is clouded or is shrouded, then our faith we cannot grasp that which we don't understand. That's why God reveals these things to us, so that we can grasp a hold of that abundant, great and abundant grace. Let's look at uh, Romans chapter 1. Once again, see what's is revealed. What is the purpose of this grace? It is to save us. Well, what does that look like? Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> what does grace do in our lives? Romans 1 verses 4 and 5. 
Let's read from verse 3, just so we can get some context, rather than starting in the middle of the sentence. Verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Do you see the sequence here? Paul says Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power. When? By the resurrection. And that's, he says, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience. This is a new way to obey. It's not by try and by our effort. Grace is given for obedience. In other words, brothers and sisters, what we receive in God's grace, when we understand that it is power, it is really the Spirit, which is the life of the Son, we receive the completed works of Christ. That is a new way to obey. Rather than obeying by our effort and by our works, we obey by possessing the life that has obeyed everything. That is God's saving grace. That's why God has given us grace, and to manifest that in our lives. God's saving, abundant grace. That's why the scripture says, you know, where sin abounded, grace has much more abounded. We're living in the time of the abundant grace. Romans chapter 5. Let's look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Saved by grace. Isn't that right? Here's a parallel verse that sums it up beautifully. Verse 10. Paul here says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. life. Put those two together, and there is a formula. We're saved by grace, Saved by His life. God's grace is really nothing other than the life of Jesus Christ. Not any life. The glorified, victorious life of Jesus Christ. That is God's grace. So all of a sudden now, grace is not this idea that exists in God's mind of favor towards those who deserve death. It is actually the life of Christ not just in heaven, but given in the heart of every believer by faith. That is what grace is. And that acronym is true. When we realize that the life of Christ is the greatest treasure there is, God's riches at Christ's expense. The greatest treasure that God could give us, He has given us. It's the life of His Son. And we, brothers and sisters, are members of His body. That body, on the day of Pentecost, the head was in heaven, the members of the body were on earth at that time in Jerusalem. The members of the body are scattered throughout the whole earth. The one bonding factor between them all is that they all partake of the grace of God. Or they all have one life, the life of the Son, the body life. The, life, the body has one life. That's what God's grace is. You know, when I realized that, I thought, wow, I, 
I, I never thought grace was like that. It puts a perspective on grace. It's actually a very practical and very real thing when we talk about God's grace. Let's look at verse 17. We're almost five. Let's look at verse 17. We'll close with verse 17 because our time is up. So we'll make this our last verse. Romans 5.17, it says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Death reigned by one man. That's the first Adam, sin and death. But here we're told about something that supersedes that talks about those who receive abundance of grace. This is, no longer is it just grace. It is abundance of grace. Why? Because we're living in the dispensation of grace. We're living in a time when God is just dishing out grace to anyone who will believe. He's just dishing it out. But the question is, have we believed? Have we received? And this grace, this abundance of grace, it will reign, it's, it, of, of the gift of righteousness of Christ, it will reign in life by one. This is what happens when you receive grace. You come under the reign of one. How? By having his life in you. You know, this is the best way that Christ can reign. There's no other king in the whole universe or in the, any empire in the world. There's no king that rules like this. Christ rules his subjects by sharing with them his own life. That guarantees true allegiance and true unity. That, that's why we're, we're uh, called co-heirs with Christ. Co an heir partakes of what the, uh, the source has. We are co-heirs with Christ. And this is a gift. Keep that in mind. That's why it talks about the gift of righteousness. It cannot be earned. It cannot be merited. It is a gift given freely. There is nothing that we can do in God's sight that can earn us this gift. It is given freely in Christ. And it's given freely in Christ to all those who exercise genuine biblical faith. That's why it's grace through faith. We didn't talk too much about faith. We just tried to paint a glorious picture of grace tonight. And hopefully that will enhance and encourage our faith. So, wow, this is really nice. And I really would like to grasp a hold of that. That's the faith. And you can't grasp a hold of that because you do anything in and of yourself. I want to mention something here in closing. Uh, when, I was, when I was younger, maybe not so much younger, you know, in my experience as a Christian, I remember I used to read stories in the Old Testament and I don't know if you've done that. And I used to wish that I lived in the Old Testament times. Have you ever done that? Hands up if you wish to, or if you live, you used to live in the time of Christ, for example. You know, I used to think these Israelites, I don't know, these guys were so thick. They had a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, you know, great evidences for faith. You know, I don't see a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. I wish I was living back then. Or, you know, when we see uh, uh, certain miracles, or we see different events in the Old Testament, we see God working in mighty ways. So, you know, this is a time where I wish I'd lived then. And, and I, I can, from what you said, some of you think that way. You know, the amazing thing is, the people who lived in the Old Testament, they wished that they were living now. 
It's like nobody's happy with where they are, huh? <laughs> Remember what Jesus told his disciples? He says there are many people who have wished to see the things you see and hear the things that you're hearing, but they didn't. Brothers and sisters, we have available for us more abundant grace if we would only realize it. More abundant grace. And you know, understanding and knowing this now, I don't want to wish to live any other time than right now where the abundance of grace is available. A time when even the angels looked forward to, not just the prophets of old, even the angels in heaven were looking forward to this time when there would be this abundance of grace made available. And it seems like the only ones who have missed it is God's people. Because too often we are still living like we're in Old Testament time. We need to live at the time when the abundance of grace is available. And how that is manifest in our lives is if we reach forward by faith and grab a hold of it. So that it is seen. So this life, this grace is the power of God to save. It is the spirit or the life of Jesus Christ. The glorified, risen life of Jesus Christ with all its victories, with all its triumphs over sin and over temptation and over everything that Satan could throw at it. Jesus gives you that complete package, that righteous life. And that is why it is called righteousness by faith. That's what grace is. It is the righteous life of the Son. And you know what? That is the only criteria for salvation. If you have the life of Jesus Christ in you, you cannot be lost. Impossible. Because he that hath the Son hath life. If the abundant grace of God is reigning in your life, it will reign unto life eternal by one Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's why, hopefully now you understand a little better or a little clearer what the scripture means when it says we are saved by grace through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, because life can only be obtained as a gift. You cannot earn life. When you received life as a child, when we were born into the family of Adam to your parents, that life came to you not because you did anything. It came as a gift, freely. In the same way, that's what happens when we are born again. We receive life as a gift. It has to be inherited, not earned. So brothers and sisters, let us appreciate the abundance of God's grace. I hope you know, your appreciation has increased a little bit as a result of, of this study. Let us appreciate God's grace, the saving life of His Son. Let us reach out by the hand of faith and grasp a hold of it and not let, not let go. Can you imagine if a whole group of people reached out and grabbed a hold of that faith in the genuine biblical way that God intends? You know what would happen? We would have Pentecost all over again. We wouldn't just be reading about it in a book and wishing we were there. We would be experiencing it. Let us pray. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.